Welcome to the show. You are now part of Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people success, deal success, and strategy success. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals, and they share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So Devin and I just got back from our first road show which was called Celebrate on Tour. So we were in four cities on the East Coast and the Midwest. It was tons of fun, also super exhausting. So we were both yes. really glad to be back in SF. At least I am. I'm very glad to be home. I was a little worried my dog might not recognize me when I got back. Uh, he did, but he was tired by the time I got back. <laughs> um, no, it was it was awesome. I think um, the locals were, were funny because they're like, wow, you chose to come to the East Coast and Chicago in the middle of February, um, which put my my winter attire to the test because I'm like, you know, uh, t-shirt and low cut, uh, sneakers most of the time. And so there I had to bring out the boots, the mittens, all that good stuff. But Hey, I, I got home and I thought out and everything was good. Exactly. Yeah. In Toronto, I forgot my big poofy jacket on the plane. No. And, you know, of course you have to go through customs and all of that. So I had to wait around for about an hour and a half, but then the gate agent did bring my jacket all oh, the way to the nice. front of the United check-in. So I had a nice warm jacket to wear in Toronto. So, so things could be worse. <laughs> exactly. What, what was your highlight? There were a lot of different things. I think just meeting folks who are either, you know, using Gong or have read our content or just like yeah. interacted with you know, gong in some way and just hearing all the, you know, the amazing things that they have to say. I think that was just really humbling and also, and rewarding too. Yeah, for sure. To go from kind of like, like you said, like a, the digital presence to like in person was yeah. really cool. People would be like messaged or talked to. Yeah. was nice. Um, it, it was fun. It was a lot of fun, which I think is, you know, obviously our flavor and, and not all, not all sales events always land as such. My, my personal, mm-hmm. personal highlight uh, goes out to Boston because I finally got to go see a Celtic game at home. Went to double overtime. Celtics won. I had clam chowder before that. My, my, I was only there for 24 hours. My like, life is complete now. So. Yeah, you did all the check, you know, like you hit all the bucket list items for Boston in like yeah. tw- less than 24 hours. Pretty amazing. It was great. <laughs> and, and while we were in at the New York stop, we met Dave Matson, who's the CEO of Sandler Training. And that's who we talked to today. Pretty timely because we recently announced a partnership with Sandler. Yeah. Um, in which uh, you can actually measure the effectiveness of Sandler's sales methodologies directly inside of Gong. So um, it was really fun to meet him at the event and hear about how he has actually taken over Sandler from a family-run business right. to this, um, I don't, I can say empire. <laughs> it's, it seems yeah, like it. it feels like an empire. <laughs> um, you know, with hundreds of franchisees uh, globally. So really it was interesting to hear about his journey over decades doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and spoiler alert, we talk about uh, sales methodology and sales training and how to do it, uh, how to do it successfully here. So let's go ahead and dive into our interview with Dave. So just to kick things off, do you have a morning routine that you stick to? And if so, what is it? 
Uh, Well, I do have a morning routine. I never thought about it really, but you know, I have one of those, I I make an energy shake and then I go work out and then I answer all my emails before I get to the office. So when I get to the office, I'm ready to start the day versus, you know, downloading an email or two for an an hour. So I probably get 250 of them a day. Mm -hmm. So I like to clear the decks before I start. That's smart. What time do you have to wake up to do all of that? <laughs> well, I'm always up around 4, 15, 4, 30. Oh. <laughs> See, if you want to accomplish all that before you get to the office, you can get yeah. <laughs> That was my first yeah. question is how early are we starting today to get through that many emails before yeah. we get started? We try to get to the office by 730. So, you know, it starts early. And, and as the CEO of Sandler, <laughs> what are you focused on for 2020? Well, we're, we're focused on a lot of things. One is channel. <clears throat> so for... For us as an organization, we know that sales is going into more and more of a, a channel type approach. So we've we've launched a channel book. We're launching a channel program. Um, from a CEO perspective, you know, strategic alliances. Um, so really, that's what we're doing. In addition to, we have broken up our. Salesforce more into practices now. You know, we train 31,000 people a year. And if we just look back from a macro perspective, they're coming from certain industries, right? And so we've broken up our teams. So those teams will go after those industries. They're, they come from the industry. They're industry experts. And then all of our online platforms, content has now been, is being broken up to, to do that. And so that's one. And I think the big, big, big one that's, going to be a game changer for Sandler is the world's going to voice, right? So we have all this technology that's going on. And from a training perspective, I've got to stay ahead of the puck. Mm -hmm. And so we have an online platform that people can log on to. And I've got hundreds of thousands of people in this and it's, it's great. But the key phrase is you have to log on to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people want content and whatever modality they want, whenever they want it. And they also maybe want it in a 45 minute chunk or a four minute chunk. So we have moved all of our training assets over to voice. So you can simply now just say, Alexa, I want to hear a podcast with Dave Matson, or Alexa, I want to hear X. And it just is instantly, instantaneously comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some of those large CRMs have moved, are moving towards mm-hmm. voice as well. So I think we're well positioned for those that are making that transition from a CRM perspective, but also the younger generation, right? So it's exciting. So in your career has primarily been um, sales training, right, throughout, mm-hmm. whether, whether it was Sandler, and I think before that you were the franchise with Sandler. So maybe you could give a little bit of, uh, first of all, context for how does Sandler work, just structurally, you could briefly touch on that, and then what motivated you to get into sales training in the first place? Well, the structure of Sandler is I have a corporate side, which is a corporate sales team, that goes out primarily focusing on, on enterprise clients. And we also have a franchise side. Um, the franchise side primarily is SNB, although they do enterprise as well, but SNB and they all have training centers. So people can go for you know one-time fee. They can go as to as much training to their, at their centers as they want in any topic that we provide. So that's, that's the model there. And the reason we franchised is because I needed the absolute best salespeople and best sales leaders to be training 
you know, our clients, because otherwise, if you know somebody hasn't carried a bag, you, you know, or they've never made a cold call and they're teaching a prospecting course, you're like, really? Can, yeah. Let me see right. you do that. Let me see you do that. And so I've got 265 training centers across the world, and there's 600 uh, trainers that have been with us. I have, you know, only 4% turn, which is nothing. Um, so they've all been with us for a long, long time. So that's our setup. Um, how I started it, I was a client. Mm. I, I was a client. I'm introverted by nature. And I, you know, I've always worked, right? So you can start with the paper route and the snow blowing and the leaf raking. <laughs> then I had, <laughs> I had a painting company in high school all through college and did really well. And then I, I kind of moved away from that for whatever reason, because somebody made a comment to me like, oh, you don't want to be in the contracting business. That's a terrible business. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I was 25 at the time. I'm like, oh, I can start something else. But I didn't realize I had the, I had the rainbow already. I didn't have to go yeah. anywhere. Mm -hmm. it just, I should have completely discounted what they said. I didn't. So I went to work for a neighbor and the neighbor was a Sandler client. And one of the conditions upon employment is that I had to pay my own way. They would reimburse me if I hit certain quotas, right? So it's kind of pay to play. Mm -hmm. And so I went in and it was Sandler. And I realized that they had a conversational sales model. And I became their number one salesperson. And I spent hours practicing because I thought you had to be born a salesperson. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that salespeople were made, which makes, you know, it's common sense, really. We're all you know, who thought they were going to be in sales or, you know, who woke up and said, oh, I'm going to be an engineer. So once I realized that I, you're made, then it was upon me, right? So it just focused on my, what am I going to do? And so I did spend the time doing it. So I went then after I became the number one salesperson, I went to work for a Sandler trainer because in my head, I was like, well, what's the best way to become a machine? We should go work for those guys, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're doing it. And it's psychologically based. My mom's a psychologist. So I see this is like right in my swing zone. And uh, so I worked for him and I got to see Dave Sandler because we believe in ongoing reinforcement training. So I came down to Baltimore four times a year. And I'm, of course, I can recite all the Sandler. I'm going to age myself here. All the Sandler <laughs> tapes and role play. I mean, I could, you know, like a, I was a groupie. Let me, let me just say it that way. <laughs> and uh, so when Sandler said one day, hey, I'm looking for somebody to help me train the trainers. I looked over at my guy and I said, do you mind if I talk to him about this? He goes, no, go for it. And so that's how it started in 1988. And I, my first job was to train the trainers. And then Sandler put me on the road to go do seminars. Um, so I went to Europe. I did a probably a 45 minute talk. And then I spent two years there because I had an accent, right? I had, <laughs> I have very sarcastic, dry humor. And, uh, in 94, I became his partner, David, uh, and David unfortunately passed in 95. And then I just kept buying the company and I bought, you know, some in 2007. I bought all of it in 2012 and it was a family owned business. Mm -hmm. I was the non-family member. Um, so I just kind of, you know, I just bought people out as I, as they either wanted to get out which was, you know, it was a great opportunity for me. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of unusual in our space because once the founder passes, you know, it's kind of over. Um, right. in, in that, in our business, if you think about all the famous seminar leaders, most of those businesses aren't here today if they've passed. So that's kind of been my journey. How do you, 
um, find that person who can come in that you are able to trust who may be outside of the family uh, to run a significant part of the business, whether, whether it's a sales side or another side of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky to do that. And by the way, I wasn't welcomed by the other family members, right? Because I was Dave Sandler's protege. And when you're Dave Sandler's son, that's a little uncomfortable, yeah. right? Um, but I think if you're in a family-owned business, if you understand the lanes and you and you know there's going to be overlap between business and personal, you just have to know that up front. To me, it was communication. It was just, okay, what are the roles and responsibilities? And I just honestly, I think what kept me here is production. I mean, you have to produce and you can't judge yourself against others that are family members because they have different rules, right? So you can't say, well, I'm doing better than, you know, Susie over here. I'm doing better. That doesn't much matter. You have to be a rock star uh, if you want to get into the ownership position. Otherwise, you know, family-owned businesses, if you're selling or, or if you're a sales leader, it's like any other business, you know, it can be as dysfunctional or functional as anything else. For, for the folks listening that are sales leaders, maybe they're working at a family-owned business, maybe, you know, B2B tech, uh, you know, as, as Gong is, what, what advice do you have, Dave, for the folks that want to become CEO? What, what should they expect? And maybe what are some of the kind of the surprises that you encountered? Well, I think if you want to become a CEO and you're a sales leader, I think you should start paying attention to what they're doing. Like, say you have two tasks now, right? You've got to do a good job in your own world. And most sales leaders don't come into their position uh, being trained. Most of them are promoted because they're good in the field. Right. And then, you know, the leader says, hey, good luck to you. I'd like you to replicate what you've done. Make sure these other 50, 60 people act like you do and we'll just be awesome. And they're trying to figure out their own job. But the challenge is you've got to take a look at what the CEO is doing. And so I had the opportunity to watch Sandler. Um, and so I would a say, pay attention to what they're doing and then talk to them and just don't talk to them about, you know, Hey, how cool is it to be a CEO? But Hey, what are your day-to-day challenges? And then how do you think about not, you know, how did you, how do you think about X, Y, and Z? Because what you want to figure out is how do they process and how are they thinking about things? And then I think in addition to that, and just not the just not the person you're working for, I think you should go to others as well. There's plenty of books out there that can help you prepare to become a CEO. And once you understand what some of the responsibilities are of a CEO, then I think it's your responsibility as a sales leader to go out and start getting those experiences. I think that's the path that I would take. Everyone's doing their best at work. Everyone is putting their best foot forward. What's a good way to get a better understanding? Like, hey, am I being transparent enough? Am I communicating? Am I collaborating? And collecting that feedback from the team. I, th- I think there's one is you can you can certainly do a gauge. Um, but if I were talking to a CEO, or I would say, you know, look, we do reviews, and, and you know the. The real issue is, and the reason why you hear, you hear me hem and hawn, most people actually don't give feedback and most people don't ask for feedback. Um, we kind of live in this, you know, no one's saying anything, so I guess I'm doing a good job. Mm-hmm. You know, right. um, we touch in once a week or once a month and we're talking about the numbers, but we're not talking about personal improvement. So I think you have to take it upon yourself to say to the people that you work for, hey, what are your t- top like 
five expectations of me and then write them down and make sure that you clearly understand them. Right. Because you have to validate what you're doing. And then I would do monthly check-ins and I would say, Hey, you know, in a zero to five, how am I doing? And have them give you brutal feedback and then, you know, don't take it personally. And what do you need to do in order to improve? When it comes to your sales team, that's a little dicey, right? Because yeah. you don't want to go there completely vulnerable, but you want honest feedback. And I think you can kind of also tell based on the interaction, because if you're if you're communicating and people feel safe, then they're going to come and talk to you. If you realize that no one's really kind of bringing the difficult you know, things to you, or no one's coming in and closing the door and asking your advice, that could be a signal that, hey, they don't have that relationship with you. And then you have to ask why. It's really, it's really helpful. And I had that with Sandler. I mean, I felt so safe to openly talk to him and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm way, I'm super uncomfortable with this thing. What am I going to do here? And if I didn't have that, I don't think I would have excelled as fast as I did. I would have just had to figure it out. And, you know, I think that's what probably 90% of the population is just trying to figure it out because we find, we, we find ourselves vulnerable if we ask for help or if we say, Hey, look, I just don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I think you could say that to your sales team without saying, look, I have no idea what I'm talking about here. You could say, Hey, look, there's a lot of ways to solve this. Let's do a quick brainstorming session. What do y'all think? You know, and that's a way to include them. It's inclusive, you know, it's good communication. So you could, it's, you could do it that way as well. But again, you and I both know we've all been around. It doesn't happen that often, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, not enough. But that is that is excellent advice, uh, Dave. I, I wrote some notes down, and I'm sure some listeners are too. And things that you can put in practice right away. Coming back to Sandler as a firm, it's really the biggest name in sales training. What do you attribute to the success of Sandler? Um, and are there certain things that you've learned along the way that have really that you've been able to hone in on to uh, continue that success? Yeah, so I think for us, I think the the reason why we're we're still standing in an, an environment where most of my competitors are not actually is a our local markets. You know, no one has 265 training centers. I mm-hmm. think it's the ability that we have one voice, whether it's from customer success, then to inside sales, to AEs, to enterprise, to sales leaders. You know, we've got content that will help you throughout your career, and that's unusual, right? Because you would right. go to firm A for this and firm B for that. You can, if you like Sandler, you can make that journey through your, through, you know, through your professional career with us. Mm-hmm. I think also, you know, from a training perspective, we do tons of role play where we actually show people how to use the things because I think people have to practice before they get into the real situation. But I also think we have something called the success triangle and the success triangle is that we're working on three areas, behavior, attitude, and technique. And what separates us is everybody works on technique. Like what's the best way right. to get past the gatekeeper? What's the best way to, you know, kind of accelerate the close? Yeah, well, give it to me. And, mm-hmm. and and we listen, we have it. We're known for tactics. That's great. But what what really makes it stick so you could use it is the behavior and attitude stuff. Now, you can't just show up and say, hey, group, we're going to do attitude training today. I mean, that's <laughs> a, like a chirp, chirp moment, right? Like, oh, my goodness gracious, here we go. So when you're talking about, let's just say, prospecting, sure, you give them all the tactics, and then you say, look, 
here's how you, here's the mindset that you have to go into it with. And you, and you talk about, it's okay to fail. And you talk about the fact that you, it's okay. You don't like it and all the things that they're feeling. Yeah. You know how to prospect and you can feel good about it, but you actually have to kind of do it. And, and it's overwhelming, but if you do the behavior, see, I think good salespeople are behavioralists. If they just do the little bit each day that it takes to be successful, it's not overwhelming. Right. You know, it's kind of like running. Like I hate running like anyone else would hate running, you know, but if you say, look, you got to run 20 miles a week, and I wait until Friday to do it, I'm not going to do it. But if I just did a little each day, you know, it's kind of simple. And I think that's the way it is in sales and it's the way it is in sales leadership as well. And I think the big thing for us is that we are willing to transition. Look, we grew up on two programs and it would have been real easy for us to stick with those two programs. But, you know, we're putting out six books a year. We're adding programs because the market is changing. And so you have to be flexible in, even though it's our baby, you know, our baby has to change and it's hard, right? It's hard. You're like, well, why would we do that? It's, this kind of works, but the ages are different. People are learning differently. You know, we're in 31 countries. It's just, if you're flexible and don't put your ego, you know, into the decision process and don't look that, look at all the awards that we've won in the past, that means nothing. That's the past. That doesn't guarantee you success in the future. If you want an award in the future, then you better figure out what that environment looks like and then be willing to change. Mm -hmm. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think that's what's kind of helped us. You've talked a little bit about like staying on top of the trends and the evolution of um, sales training and how people learn. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how you've seen um, this industry change over the last five to 10 years. What are the things that stand out? In no particular order, I think one is um, more role play. That, that would be one. But the industry, I think, is changing from a macro perspective is that it's becoming um, a blended environment, right? There used to be just here's sales training companies, here are content companies, and here are platform companies. But now it's it's becoming one, you know, so I think the technology, which by the way, hasn't even begun. I mean, who knows what's coming in the next five years? You know, people are telling me, Dave, I've got this hologram technology. You don't even have to leave your offices. You just sit there and, and they think they're in front of you. I'm like, okay, I don't know. But we have streamed, let's even streaming. We have found that the younger generation doesn't necessarily think coming to a face-to-face program. If it's live and interact, we probably, I said at 30 or 31,000 people in, in our seminars, we've had 19,000 people that I never saw. They just, we stream content to them. Mm-hmm. And that has changed in the last five years. Five years ago, that was nobody, nobody. And now it's, it's common, it's common. So for teams who are actually in the process of rolling out sales enablement um, methodologies or training, what advice do you have for those sales leaders and enablement teams? One of them I would say is match your methodology to your sales process. So, you know, sales process is awesome. Sandler's a sales process, but your company sells different than another company. And I think the sales leaders and enablement has to figure out how to integrate 
the methodology into the process that they're following. And I think it is that responsibility of methodology to go into process. You shouldn't change your sales process to accommodate methodology. So that would be one. And it sounds intuitive, but I would tell you seven out of 10 companies don't, don't make that connection for whatever reason. I think the other one is put in management first. So what's going to make or break any sales training, management training is involvement of you as a sales leader. Definitely. I, I promise because senior leadership's made the investment. They want it to happen. Individual producers want to be better, but you have to reinforce it and you have to be congruent. You can't go to a, a seminar and learn, Hey, you should set a good agenda or what we call an upfront contract. And then the sales manager just shows up and throws up. So you have to be consistent because People are watching what you do as much as they're listening to what you say. So you, if you're going to go into sales methodology, you're going to have to commit to doing it. This is, this is not an event. It's a journey. So that's the other thing I would say. You know, People aren't going to change overnight. If they would, you could just give them a book and it would have happened already, right? Mm-hmm. So that's there. I think another thing that I would do is to make sure that your methodology ties in to whatever way that you're tracking your sales but you know if it's a crm you know we've trained salesforce for years if you're using salesforce then make sure that it's tied in there so it's constantly in front of people it becomes part of their dna and that's really what you you want it to do i think from a sales leaders the other thing that i would do is that if you want sales methodology to stick you should do a pre-call planning and, and why is that important? Well, pre-call planning by itself is super important, but to just answer this question, if I was looking at what do I wanna to do to make sure that methodology is a good investment for me, whether I'm in enablement or sales leadership, by doing pre-call plans, you're actually helping shaping what people are saying before they go, which means if they're not doing some of the things that they've learned, now is the time to say, well, how are you going to address X? Oh, I don't know. Okay, but when we went through XYZ methodology, we learned this. Wouldn't that fit? And that's how you're helping them make it part of their everyday life. Because debriefs are cool. It's awesome. But it's already happened, right? I mean, my son can tell me he got an F on math, but it's already done. But if he comes to me ahead of time and says, hey, I'm I'm not really sure what to do on this, I can help him study. And that's really, I think, a sales leader's or enablement's job is to help us make it part of our DNA. So those are some of the things that I would absolutely do if I was going to make an investment in sales methodology. Time for our data breakout where we look at the cold hard facts, the data. Dave is the guru when it comes to sales training and rolling out sales methodology. And he provided some great advice for a successful rollout. And I wanted to dig into a couple. First, he said to pick a sales methodology that fits your sales process. In CSO Insights 2019 sales performance report, they found that the second most common change for sales leaders was dropping an ineffective sales methodology or sales process. Leaders abandoned sales process steps that weren't taking hold and training programs that produced few results and even tools that were too complicated for the outcome. This makes sense. As your business grows, your needs change and it's okay and even a good idea to change methodologies as your business grows. Second, 
He said it wasn't an overnight change, but that rolling these things out is a journey. And according to Aberdeen Group, 20% more sales reps achieve quota when their team implements post-training reinforcement. But of course, you need to focus on reinforcement training around the most critical aspects of the sales training that will move the needle for your business and produce long-term behavior change. How can sales enablement and sales partner together to ensure you know, successful implementation, both short and long-term? Well, I think the f- one of the things that they could do is to make sure they, they understand what each and every one of them is trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Sales enablement does most of the heavy lifting up front, and then sales leadership is on the receiving end, as is sales. That's a mistake. I think you need sales leadership involved in the planning process of, okay, how are we rolling this out? What's the content going to be? Hey, why are we covering this first? You know, that's that's nice over here at Team Selling, but shouldn't we be covering this first? It's more important to me as a sales leader, which therefore I'm going to be more involved, right? Otherwise, I don't want to roll my eyes and say, oh, my goodness gracious, here we go. So that's important. And then I think the other is over-communicate. You know, if you ask sales leaders how often do they communicate with sales enablement, it's not as often as you think, and it's certainly not as often as it should be. So if we can give honest feedback about, hey, these are some of the issues, conversations. You know, it sounds simple, but but scheduled sessions to touch, you know, just to touch base. Hey, what what's sticking? What's not sticking? Sales leaders, what do you need as far as help? Because I think that's the other thing. Sales enablement, we – and again, I'm making generalizations, which aren't fair, but we want to make sure that the program is successful and our people are successful. You know, sales enablement, I think that word's going to change eventually. Hmm. But even if I called it sales leadership enablement, right, right, is what can we do to make sure that you have the tools to be successful and then you're utilizing the tools, you know how to use the tools. That collaboration would really help in that, in that journey as they make that together. Well, that makes a lot of sense because it sounds like the key is alignment. So revenue intelligence um, is really all about using data um, and understanding your customer reality instead of using opinions to make decisions. How do you see data playing a role in the adoption and success of sales training? I I think it's one of the ways that we can figure out whether we're using sales training. So let me just, let me paint a picture and I'll just tell you how I, I see it using with sales training. One is we can do a baseline. I, I can figure out how technology or revenue intelligence, what is our current state, mm-hmm. right? Where are we? Where are my gaps? And I can have gaps by team. I can have gaps by individual or as an organization. And then what, from a methodology perspective, what would Sandler come in to do to teach that? Now, first of all, the big aha is we don't have to go and do one-on-one training. We should be teaching to the issues that you have today, which we would not have known, and nor would have sales leaders had known unless we actually saw it, right? There it is. That's the problem. It's like saying, I don't feel good which is what a sales leader would say, versus a doctor says, I'm looking at an MRI. You have three specific problems. By the way, here is where they are. I'd like to go to the doctor. I mean, that sounds a little better to me, right? So now during the training, they're going to learn tactics, skills, right? I can find very quickly whether people are using 
what they're learning. You've made an incredible investment of time and money and energy to bring in Sandler. So why wouldn't you make sure people are utilizing it? And how do we do right. it today? We said, hey, is everyone using that, that Sandler stuff? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I'll even say it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And that way I know the sales leader won't pay attention to me because obviously I'm using it. Right. <laughs> and so, but it's, it's based on f- fantasy. I don't know. I'm only, I only know what's being reported to me, but if I can go into a tool to say, you know what? Hey, I don't, I don't see the usage in the following areas because I've tagged the words I've tagged the concept and I will know like the MRI what's being used and what's not being used. So to wrap things up, what do you think is the most important skill that sales leaders should focus on in 2020? I think making your team self-sufficient is super important. Making sure that you can do whatever humanly possible to allow them to go through a sales process, go through their talk tracks, know what they're going to say, have that confidence and conviction versus, you know, they're trying to a figure it out or what I call the culture of learned helplessness, which is, you know, the, the leader consents to jump in more than they should because they have to. So I think self-sufficiency is there. How about accountability would be something else that I would focus on Mm -hmm. in 2020. And then just because we all know the numbers about the number of people that are not hitting quota, I would, I would seriously consider, I would seriously focus in if I was a sales leader, because if, if the statistics when every, and even our research that we did come up with the same thing that, you know, a lot of people aren't making quota. I think what I would be doing is to say, I'm going to do a skill-based boot camp. That's my mentality for 2020. I'm going to get my people up to speed on what they need to say, what they need to know in order to become self-sufficient and successful. And if I did nothing else, that would be awesome. The the final question that we have for you, Dave, we ask all of our guests is how Mm. would you describe sales in one word? Communication. But that makes sense. It lines with what you were saying earlier, right? In terms of how you can be a better sales leader. uh, Well, people buy from people, right? And so, you know, it's hard to your point. Yeah. So uh, communication hasn't come up, I guess, huh? Not, not yet. Not, not yet. Not I'm second guessing my answer now. I'm feeling very <laughs> <Yeah>. uncomfortable. <laughs> Don't worry. Others have said the same thing when I was like, no one's ever uh, said the same answer. And then like, well, man, should I? Should I be? <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah. That was yeah. great. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, to, to speak to the sales trainer of all sales trainers is, is a real treat. And so we're, we're really grateful for your time. Well, thanks again for having me. And thanks again for a wonderful partnership. Every week at the end of the episode, we'd like to bring you a micro action. It can be something to think about or something you can put into play today. I really like the simple but impactful idea Dave shared around setting clear expectations and giving and asking for feedback, something that we just don't do enough of. In your next one-on-one, have a candid conversation around expectations and personal improvement. Here's how. First, let's start with expectations. By aligning on expectations, even if you've done it before, you remove room for confusion, and that frees up room for focus, which will lead to increased production. A good exercise to practice this is to have you and your manager write out your top five priorities in order of importance. Do this separately at first, then bring the list together and compare them in your one-on-one. You'll immediately see any misalignment, things maybe you thought were important, but in fact really aren't, and vice versa. Chat through all of them, and when you're done, you'll both be on the same page in terms of what matters, and what doesn't. 
Next, make giving and receiving feedback a habit in your working relationships. And again, one-on-ones are a great starting point. It doesn't have to be positive and constructive every week to start. In fact, if this is a very new motion for you, I suggest starting with positive feedback for the first couple sessions. It helps to condition the other person that feedback is a good thing. Then you can weave in constructive feedback too. By mixing in constructive and positive feedback week over week, this type of conversation normalizes and this way you'll accomplish a balanced and healthy feedback loop with your team. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.